0: ...of that gospel is found in the, a letter that was written by Paul, who was one of the leading evangelists of the first century, in a letter that he wrote to the church that met in Rome. He didn't know the church personally, but he wrote to them. And while he takes many, many chapters in that book to describe the gospel, and we will be working our way through that book in the next several months, in the opening verses, he gives a very succinct summary of what this gospel or good news is all about. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You know, many people think that Christianity was a religion that got started about 2,000 years ago when a man named Jesus started living in what we call Palestine, started teaching certain things, and his followers began a new religion called Christianity. That's actually how many religions of this world got started. Back in my own home country, long before Christ, a young man who was uh, grappling with the problems of human suffering sat under a tree and supposedly received enlightenment from God and out of him, his teachings came the religion that we call Buddhism today. Uh, our Muslim friends believe that their prophet received a revelation from God while he was sitting in a cave. And his revelations were written down in a book that is their holy book called the Quran. And many people believe that that's how Christianity is. Another religion uh, God started because the followers of a man named Jesus liked what he was teaching 2,000 years ago and started teaching about it. Actually, that's furthest from the truth. And in the opening words of this description of the gospel, Paul says that this gospel was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. He refers, of course, to the scriptures of the Jewish people, what we call the Old Testament, which is an 1800 year history of the people of Israel and how God dealt with them. And when we look at this history, we see a very clear way of looking at the world emerging. And as we understand that will, we will begin to see how Christianity was not a new religion at all. But in what sense, Paul says, this good news had been anticipated for 1800 years and comes to its fruition in, in Jesus. There are three things that defined uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures in terms of a worldview. The first and most basic belief was there is one God who created the world. He's not identical with his world like the Stoics in Paul's time believed. But he is a God who created this world and he lives in dynamic relationship with that world. The fancy word for that is creational monotheism. In our everyday language, it is a belief in one God who created the world. So he was neither identical with the world like the Stoics of the day believed, nor was he distant and detached from the world like the Epicureans believed, which were the two major philosophies of that time. Today, most North Americans tend to be Epicureans, although with the onset of the New Age not too long ago, we had some at the other end of the spectrum. But Paul says no. It, it, the Scriptures, Old Testament scripture says that there was one God who created the world and who is in relationship with it. But the world was also in a mess. You look around, there's a lot of suffering and evil in the world. So the question then arises, what has God done to set this world right? And what he did was not how most people would expect. The Old Testament scriptures teach us that God called one man named Abraham and through him came a whole nation that we know as the nation of Israel. God entered into a covenant or a special relationship with Israel. He revealed his holy laws to them in the Ten Commandments. He taught them how he was to be worshipped and he gave them a mission. And the mission was by being a unique people who worshipped this God and obeyed him, they would be a blessing to the rest of the world. And that was God's way in which he would set the world right. The fancy word for that is election. One people chosen and blessed by God to bless the world. But as the history of the Old Testament continues, you will find that these chosen people made a mess of their calling. They didn't exactly obey God. In fact, they messed things up. And God sent his prophets in the Old Testament. And as you continue reading the history of the Jewish people, you will find that many of these prophets kept speaking to them, calling them to come back to God, to recover their original destiny. But they disregarded these prophets. They even killed some of their own prophets. And so because of that, the nation finally went into exile. And first under the kingdom of Assyria and finally through the conquest of the Babylonians in about 586 B.C., they were. Their temple was destroyed, their kings were taken captive, and they went off into captivity. So now the question rose in captivity, is that the end? Is that the end of God's purposes? Will the world be set right when God's own people have messed it up? That brought about the third element, which is come by, goes by the fancy word of eschatology, but it basically means a national hope for fulfilling their divine destiny. These same prophets, if you read in the Old Testament, you will find that even as they were... Uh, confronting the people with their failure, there was a second strand to their message, and that was a message of hope, that in spite of the failure of God's people, he would still accomplish his purposes. And God gave them very many powerful pictures in the Old Testament. One of the most powerful came through the mouth of a prophet named Ezekiel, who spoke to them during their exile. And in, that, in his prophecy, which is a very long prophecy, he paints a very powerful vision. And it's a vision of a valley of dry bones. And for the Jewish people, to have human bones exposed in public was the ultimate act of desecration and disgrace. Because an appropriate burial was very important. And so this picture of the Valley of Dry Bones was a picture of an unclean people. God's own people who had failed, even though they were chosen for this special destiny. And then, to cut a long story short in the vision... God calls the prophet Ezekiel to preach, and the wind begins to blow. And the wind in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, is a powerful metaphor of the Holy Spirit of God and the power of God. And these bones begin to rattle, and they all get connected properly like in a human skeleton. They are then clothed with skin and bones and flesh. And then God speaks through the prophet again, and the wind of God blows, and every one of these people comes alive. From that time on, this picture of resurrection became a powerful metaphor of this eschatology or this hope that in spite of the fact that we have failed, God is going to accomplish his purposes. And so this was the threefold, uh, if you will, worldview that is saturated in 1800 years of Old Testament. God, one God who created the world and is in a dynamic relationship with it, one people that God called out and blessed to be a blessing to the world, they messed it up for that they were exiled. But there was still this one strand of hope of which resurrection became a powerful, vivid metaphor. And the Apostle Paul's opening announcement of the gospel of the good news is, Guys, it's happened. This thing that you were looking for, this national hope that you were looking for has happened. But of course they look around and say, but Paul we're still in exile. They had been allowed, the Jewish people by the time of Paul writing to Rome, had come back to their land. But now Rome was the superintendent they were still an enslaved people. So they would look to Paul and say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean our hope has been realized? We're still in exile. <laughs> Paul says, it has been realized, but not the way you think it has. And so he makes a second statement about it. Not only is this gospel promised beforehand in the scriptures, it is the gospel regarding his son, Jesus Christ. God has come back to his people, but not in the way you expect. First of all, he described them as descended from David. The human side of Jesus, the human lineage was a descendancy from David. When God did come back to His people, He came as a human embryo. He got into the womb of a of a Jewish virgin named Mary, who had descended from David. She was engaged to be a man named to a man named Joseph, who was also descended from David. What was He saying in this? This was another powerful metaphor in the Old Testament for the hope that would eventually be fulfilled. Part of that promised hope was there would be a king. A king who would descend from the line of David who had been Israel's greatest king. And that this king or Messiah would rule the world. And one of the most powerful pictures came from another prophet named Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Who would not want a king like that? You see, when the Israelites were taken into exile because of their failure, one of the things that died was this hope of a king. Because their kings were taken captive. Their kings had shown a long history of unfaithfulness to God, because of which the whole nation was destroyed. Their temple was gone. Where would this hope be? Paul's statement to them is part of the gospel is this promised king is none other than Jesus Christ himself descended from David. That was his human side. And then the gospel regarding his son talks about his divine side. Not only did he descend from David, he was declared with power to be son of God by his resurrection. Remember the picture in Ezekiel 37 of the valley of dry bones being resurrected? And so here was Paul saying to the people, it has happened. It has happened in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why the early preaching of the gospel consisted of one simple statement. This Jesus whom you have crucified, God has raised up from the dead and made both Lord and Christ. This is why, this is why I say, Christianity was not just a religion that was invented 2000 years ago because some people decided they liked the teaching of this man called Jesus. Rather as the apostle Paul has explained to us, Christ resurrected is the hope of the world. He fits into this 1800 year history of preparation. Creational monotheism where one God made the world and lived in relationship with it. Election where God chose one people and blessed them to be a blessing. But they failed. And for that they were judged. But there was still this national hope of a king from the line of David and of a resurrection. And in Jesus descended of David and declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection... That hope was finally fulfilled. This is why for Christians the Old Testament is an important part of their faith. We are not just a people of the New Testament. but The Old Testament is very much a part of it because this gospel was rooted in that 1800 year history of preparation. and was finally fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now does this mean that evil has completely been destroyed? Of course not. We look around at the world and we still see a lot of evil. And next week, in our next message in Romans, we're going to look at human evil in much greater detail. But it does mean that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a decisive blow has been struck against evil. It becomes a guarantee for us that one day when Christ comes back again, evil will be completely dealt with. But in the meantime, the first notes of victory have already been sounded. Therefore, in addition to hope, we now have joy as well. Because we have begun to see that final uh, destruction worked out each time. Now as a result of that, Paul says, it is now time to proclaim this gospel to the whole world. You see, part of the Jewish hope, part of that eschatological hope, was that when God would come back to reestablish his people, to fulfill his promises, once again the Gentile nations, the rest of the world, would hear and finally commit to Christ. So when in Jesus... In his resurrection, this hope that was anticipated in the Old Testament had come to its fruition. It was for Paul also the signal that the time had now come to speak speak this gospel everywhere. And so that's the third thing Paul says about this gospel. It is not only a gospel that was promised in the Old Testament. It is not only a gospel that was concerning his son Jesus in his uh, incarnation and his resurrection. It was a gospel for the whole world. And so Paul continues in his introduction to say, Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now it's an important declaration for the church at Rome to hear. You see, because in Rome, one of the titles for Caesar was son of God. (laughs) And when Caesar was born, the birthday of Caesar... Was called gospel or good news. It wasn't a new word. People knew it. And also Rome's final power. Was the power of the sword. They ruled by the power of life and death. Paul writing this amazing gospel. Summarizing it in this way. Is saying to this young church that lived in Rome. Caesar's birthday is not the gospel. Jesus' birthday is. Caesar is not son of God. Jesus is. And by the way they can use the power of the sword. But in the resurrection, the death has been swallowed up in victory. You can see why that would be a gospel or good news for the church in Rome. And he says now, it is for the whole world, for all of you. And I want you to notice three beautiful words in which Paul describes this new community. God's new people now are not just the Jews. God's new people now are Jews, Gentiles, and as we heard today, people from various kinds of background, from Sri Lanka, from the Philippines, from everywhere. Because he's now calling together a new community in Christ's resurrection from the dead. God's purposes through Israel was now going to be fulfilled in a new community made up of people from every tribe, nation and language as they come to Christ. And he describes this new community in three beautiful words. They are a people who belong to Jesus. They are a people who are loved by God and they are called saints. You know, those three words... Together, meet three of the deepest needs of humanity today. Let's look at the call to belong for a moment. One of the deepest needs of society today is loneliness. Deep and crippling loneliness that is related to the issue of belonging. We all want to belong. You heard one young man's testimony of rejection on the school ground. Every child that has been rejected on a school playground knows the pain of not belonging to the in-group. Every orphan that has longed to be adopted while everybody around him or her continues to get grabbed up by loving parents knows the pain of not belonging. Many single people wanting to be married to a godly man or a godly woman while seeing their friends continue to go that route know the pain of not belonging. The good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus Christ, because of our faith in him as the one in whose resurrection The the, the hope of the world is found. When through faith we become part of this new humanity that he's creating. We belong to Jesus. Remember earlier on in, in the Lent readings we read you have been graven on the palm of my hand. God looks at the palm of his hand and he sees you and me graven there. That doesn't mean the other problems that I mentioned are solved overnight. Some of those pains remain. But at its deepest core The good news of the gospel is that the fundamental need to belong has been addressed. Because you belong to the supreme God of the universe who created you and who is in relationship with you. Then notice the second word. They are loved by God. A second deep human need is for unfailing love. Unfailing love is unconditional love. Most human loves are conditional love. Most human relationships are on the basis of contracts. Do you know why we have contracts? We have contracts because we don't trust each other. If you're, going to get, if you're going to get somebody to renovate your house and you sign a contract, they even call them contractors. Why do you sign a contract? They don't believe you will pay them without a contract and you don't believe they'll do the work without a contract. So we sign every contract that exists and we in our world by contract, contracts proves that we don't trust one another. Contracts are not based on trust, they're based on mistrust. But covenant is something completely different. When God entered into his relationship with Israel and now with the people from everywhere through faith in Jesus Christ, he enters into a covenantal relationship with them and he promises because of his faithfulness to never leave us nor forsake us. That's unconditional love. That's unfailing love. (coughs) It is not a love that we have to keep earning. And so that second deep need for unfailing love is met in the gospel. But you might quickly say, but just a minute, we're called to be saints. Saints are supposed to be holy people. The young man talked about perfection, being driven by perfectionism. Doesn't that make it sound like we have to earn this favor from God? Actually, the translation is a little bit misreading because if you you look at it in the original language in which Paul wrote, that last phrase is not called to be saints, it is just called saints. When we, through faith in Jesus Christ, become part of this new community, through whom God will continue the work of setting the world right, We become saints. We don't need to go through a long process of canonization. We don't have to have done certain miracles that have to be testified before we are called saints. You have been listening to Saint Sundar speak this morning. Saint Ernesto has been leading us. And I don't mean that facetiously, folks. That's what the good news of the gospel is. You say, what's the practical difference? It's all the difference in the world between sinners desperately trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps to somehow make themselves acceptable to God and people whom God declares to be saints who sometimes sin and He will take care of that as well. That's the good news of the Gospel. Promised beforehand in the Old Testament. Concerning His Son Jesus, descended of David, raised from the dead. A gospel for the whole world. Then finally he says one more thing. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. After 25 years of preaching this good news. Paul made a discovery. Or in that period. That every time he proclaims this gospel. Promised beforehand in the Old Testament. Concerning his son Jesus. Descended of David. Raised from the dead. For the whole people he discovered that something happens. That every time he preaches that, the resurrection newness of Jesus is recreated in the lives of individuals. Their minds and their hearts are touched and they are transformed. And we heard so many testimonies of transformation. And you know what? Each time that happens, Paul says, it is a foretaste of the coming of Christ once again to complete his work. Let me give you one of many, many, many stories that talk about how? How this exact truth that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation is actually setting the world right? In 1990, inmates of Colombia's Bella Vista prison in, in South America, rioted after daily violence, prompted the prison guards to walk off the job. Local leaders called on the Colombian army to intervene. But days, there was a standoff, as we read about these things all the time. But days into the standoff, a man by the name of Oscar Oserio, who was a former Bella Vista convict, who had now become a prison chaplain, gathered a handful of Christian volunteers associated with Chuck Colson's prison fellowship. They sang hymns and they carried white flags and he and his volunteers marched in procession through the prison gates, unsure if their lives would be spared. Osario found that the prison's public address system was still working. And you know what he did? He boldly called the prisoners to repentance. Stunning prison authorities The inmates laid down their weapons. The riot was over. But more than that, the killing stopped. The gospel swept through Bella Vista like a holy fire. And in the 14 years since that event, evangelicals have embraced Bella Vista as an important place to help Colombians practice forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the power of the gospel. Today, you and I are not in Bella Vista prison. I'm not a former convict who is now a prison chaplain. But we're all in another kind of prison. Next week, Paul will spell it out in great detail. But as a foretaste, I want to tell you, that prison is our sinfulness. The young men talked about it. Last night, a young 12-year-old talked about it. And I stand here with renewed and fresh conviction. I'm not saying that for effect. God dealt with me this morning in my study. Happily. I don't mean in a serious manner. Happily dealt with me. I stand here convinced that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I stand here convinced like the Apostle Paul that every time I proclaim this gospel and I'm looking forward to doing it week after week from Romans, the resurrection life of Christ can be reenacted in some of you that I'm not even aware of. And so I invite you, I invite you to keep coming back. I invite you to come back next week and week after that as we keep looking at this magnificent gospel. As Paul unpacks it for us. If you're a visitor with us today, you come at the visit invitation of a family member or an associate or a friend. If you come to watch your friend get baptized, if you're a visitor, we have a special gift package for you. Not for those of you who are regulars, please. It's for those who are visitors. In that is a little booklet called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Died. It'll help you explain a little bit more of this gospel that I can't in the 25-minute sermon. Also, for some of you, intellectual questions are important. There are many why questions. So there are four sermons on tape that address some of the key intellectual questions about the Christian faith. How can a loving God cause so much evil and suffering? Isn't the Bible full of errors? Questions like that. So we'd encourage you to listen. And uh, also there's a little instruction there about how after Easter is over, we have an opportunity for eight weeks to enter into an investigative Bible study that you might be interested in. We'd love for you to pick up one of those packets. And continue exposing yourself to the gospel because Christ, risen from the dead, is the hope of the world. As the worship team comes now and closes this service, we're going to sing a song, a simple song called Revival. Last night, a lady on the way out said to me, she said, I've been a Christian for a while. She said, and I've been dry. Thank you for these sermons on Romans because my heart is being revived. (laughs) So please, we're not just going through the motions when we sing this song. Will you lift up your heart and cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ to continue to revive us and let this powerful gospel do its work of rejuvenating and revitalizing each one of us. There was this thing that last song, you know the picture that came to my mind, Our newspapers are full of this avian flu thing, you know. And one of the things I always talk about it, it hasn't yet gone from humans to humans. It occurred to me, but that's exactly how it goes in the gospel. <laughs> and just, I want to plant within your hearts and souls today, this, this fire, this anticipation, the joy that goes in addition to the hope, because Christ is risen from the dead. And may it begin to burn within your heart, and take a hold of you and me, like these viruses do, and let them go from humans to humans, affecting everybody around you. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.